This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. So today we're going to be looking at the um, chapter 23. And in chapter 23 we have David's, David's last words to, the, to, to his Hebrew uh, people, to the people of Israel. And uh, so I want to just start, and you know, chapter 23 is actually pretty long, but we're going to focus on these first seven verses in, in chapter 23. Um, but I want to start by just reading our, our passage this morning. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. These are David's last words to his people, and last words are important. We think about, um, we always want to think about the, well, if you're leaving the house, right, men, you're going somewhere, and your wife says to you, what's the last thing she says? No, Mike, she doesn't say I love you. She says, don't forget to drop that off, right? Or don't, don't forget I need, and okay, sometimes she says I love you, um, <laughs> But last words are important. You, you want to make sure the last thing somebody hears is, is the thing they need to know because that's the thing they're most likely, um, that's the thing that they're most likely to remember. Uh, and as we are speaking last words, we tend to, um, we try to shape how we're going to be remembered. Um, the emperor, uh, so David spoke these last words, uh, you know, uh, what are we looking at, like uh, 3,000 years ago or so. Um, and, you know, a thousand years after he spoke his last words, the Emperor Augustus uh, gave his last words, and he inscribed them on these two huge pillars for all the Romans to see. And on these pillars, uh, he told the people of, he didn't tell the people of Rome, I love you. He told the people of Rome how much they loved him. He told the people of Rome all the things that he had done for them, all the wars he had, he had fought and won. Um, he told them how much money he had spent on them um, because what he's trying to do is he's trying to, he's trying to change how they remember him. How, he's trying to shape how they think about him. His last words were uh, important to him because they were going to be his legacy. And sometimes last words are so important that we wish somebody's last words were different than what they really were, so we make them up. Um, and a great example of this is, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson. His last words were probably, is it the 4th of July yet? Because he died on the 4th of July. 
However, that wasn't good enough for us, and so we made up some new last words for him. And his official last words are, I have done for my country and all mankind that I could do, and now I resign my soul to God and my daughter to my country, which is much more elevated, right? Um, As you think about your own last words, may they be something very patriotic like that. Um, I'm sure as we're all on our deathbeds, we're we're worried about um, what we have done for our country and all mankind. So if you go online, you can find a lot of last words by famous people. Um, I don't actually believe many of them that you find. So the internet's a really great source for bad quotations. Um, But David's last words are different here. Um, And they're different in a couple of different ways because they're different from Augustus and they're different from Thomas Jefferson. And they're different from Augustus because uh, they're not really about himself. If you read his last words, what he is giving for us here um, in Second Samuel chapter 23, what's recorded is, what's recorded is a prophecy about where his kingdom's going to go. He's not saying, you need to love me because I have done these things. What he's actually doing is he's, he's making a prophecy about what a God-honoring kingdom is going to be, um, what it's going to be like, and how it's going to be a blessing for the people who live there. And they're also, they're not last words like Thomas Jefferson's either because we can actually trust them. This isn't something that's just made up to make us feel good about, um, about King David, this, this guy that we admire. And if you look at the um, look at the first couple of verses there in chapter 23, um, on three different occasions we hear that he is speaking the very words of God. The, the, the person who recorded these last words doesn't want to leave any of this up for a debate about whether or not this is just some wishful thinking on David's part. Because right? sometimes you read in the Bible, somebody says something, the Bible is trustworthy, right? So we know when somebody says something in the Bible, we can trust they said it. But are they always telling the truth? Like when Judas says, oh, you shouldn't, spend, you shouldn't waste that money. We should have saved that for the poor, right? We trust Judas said it, but we don't trust Judas is telling the truth, right? Um, however, in this case, what we see in verse 1, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse. And an oracle means these, this is a word, a word from God. He is speaking, God, is, God himself is speaking through, through David, the son of Jesse. Um, and then in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. Again, David is saying, these aren't my words. This is God speaking through me. And then in verse 3, the God of Israel has spoken. It's like, He's being really serious about this. He's just told us, depending on how you count it, three or four times in the space of a few verses, these are the very words of God. This is a sure prophecy for for the people of Israel. Um, And so I think as a sure prophecy to the people of Israel that we we ought to consider carefully what it is that what it is that David is, is telling us this morning. Um, this isn't just his, these aren't just his ideas about good politics. 
This isn't just his preference for how a country ought to be run. Um, this, is, uh, this is something more. This is something, a message uh, straight from, from God. So, um, so first I want to look at these, these verses, and I want to look at them as a prophecy about this kingdom, this kingdom of the Israelites, this kingdom that God has established. Uh, and the first thing that we see David uh, doing is that David tells us how the kingdom uh, is established. David tells us how the kingdom is established right there in the, um, in the, in the first couple of verses. So here we see in chapter 23 um, an acknowledgement of David's rather humble, uh, rather humble beginnings. Um, who is this oracle given to? It's given to David, the son of Jesse. Who's the son of Jesse? Was Jesse a great king? No. Um, was David even the greatest or the oldest of Jesse's sons? No. He was one of the younger ones. Um, and so these last words, I think, are... These are very different than the last words that a king usually gives his people. Because a king usually starts out with an announcement of how, how, how great he is, what his pedigree is, how many, of, how many thousands he's killed, how many, how many cities he's conquered, how much loot he's managed to win for his people. And David recognizes, I'm just the son of Jesse. This is very different than Augustus whenever he starts his last words where he announces to everyone how proud he is to be the son of Julius Caesar which is weird because he wasn't even the son of Julius Caesar. Um, And so here you see David being honest. He's being humble. And what really gives it away is when he says, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. And what he's pointing out here is that I am a king who had humble beginnings. I am a lowly king who was raised on high, um, raised on high by God. The anointed of the God of Jacob This just means he's the Messiah, right? The Messiah is the anointed one. Um, And so who is it that has made the God of, or who is it that has made David the king? It's the God of, it's the God of Jacob. And, And what we have here is David sort of laying out. He's about to kind of tell us what his kingdom is going to be like after he's gone. By starting out talking about how he's nobody, who is raised on high, by the God of Jacob, what he's doing is he is announcing at the front end, you can trust this prophecy because look at me. I'm not supposed to be a king. I was raised on high by the God of Jacob. Therefore, since God has done this thing, then we can trust that God's going to do this other thing I'm about to tell you about, what the kingdom is going to be like. So we have a justification for the Faith, for faith in the prophecy because God has already worked a miracle in the life of David. Who would have thought that a shepherd boy is going to end up being the king of, king of the Jews? Um, and not just a king, but a very successful king. Now right after this, after he's laid out a justification for why you can trust this prophecy, it's an oracle from God. Look, God's already worked a miracle in my own life. Then he goes in, he tells us, uh, he kind of characterizes in his prophecy what 
this kingdom is going to look like. What's this kingdom going to look like? So if you look at verses 3 and 4. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Rulers need to rule with justice, he says. Rulers need to rule in the fear of God. The rule of a righteous king is going to be refreshing to his people rather than a burden to his people. The imagery here is, um, is both contradictory and very pleasant. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. We love those mornings, right? And then right after that, he talks about rain. Um, but we love the rain too because it brings refreshment to the earth. So both of these things, both of these things are true at the same time of the ruler who rules with, with righteousness. Um, and really what he's, what he's doing here, here is he's, he's giving a, um, he's giving a prophecy about his, the kingdom of his son, his son Solomon. And if you read the, um, if you, you read the next few books of the Bible, you'll see that the reign of Solomon was really, this is the high point of the, of the Hebrew, uh, of the Hebrew state. Solomon, ex- David extended the borders, political borders of the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew state quite a bit after Saul is dead. And then Solomon extends them even more. Solomon makes great um, treaties with his neighbors. Solomon brings m- many riches, gold, wealth into his, into his country. Solomon starts massive building projects in and around Jerusalem, making Jerusalem a world-class uh, city. And so in this sense, Solomon, who is known for his great wisdom, uh, he rules justly over men. Remember the story about, you know, the baby splitting it in half? He brings justice. Um, and that justice makes for a successful state that his, the people who live there um, can be proud of. And so on some level, we see that this is a, um, this, this is a prophecy about, about, what's, about what's to come in the, under the reign of, of Solomon. Now, the third thing that David tells us about in his, um, in his prophecy here is that David tells us that this, this kingdom that is coming after him is an exclusive kingdom. If you read in verse 5, he says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. And so in order to participate in this kingdom, well, must be part of the covenant covenant community. Have a covenant with God. This isn't just this isn't just something that you just happen to get. Um, and in fact, there's um, the contrary bit here is that there are people who are outside the kingdom. There are worthless men, as verse six says. Uh, but because David's house has this covenant with God, this causes David and his family to prosper. And if you read, we're not going to read it now because it's long, but if you read the rest of chapter 23 at home in your prayer closet this afternoon, 
then you will see that the rest of chapter 23 is David and his people being very successful, um, mostly in battle. David, David's men, David's mighty men, uh, kill many of God's enemies and, um, and, and in many miraculous ways. But David's mighty men are not just mighty in and of themselves. In a couple of points during the rest of chapter 23, it very clearly says, the Lord brought about victory. And so, and it sort of reflects back to verse, verse 5 here. The Lord is the one who brings about victory for his people because he has this covenant with them. It's not up to them to do the mighty works um, themselves for God. However, as, as we said in verse 6, not everyone experiences the blessings of this kingdom. And so we have worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. And here you can, uh, the word worthless here has sort of a, I mean, it just means worthless. But it, when talking about people, it also has this connotation of foolishness and a connotation of uh, godlessness that the reason they are foolish and the reason they are worthless is because they have no, they have no fear of the Lord. And if you've been with us for the last, uh, the last number of weeks, we have seen many examples in the story of 2 Samuel of people who exhibit this, this worthless character, people who have stood against David the anointed of God, and by doing that also stood, um, stood against God. And so even these people who seem like they are part of the kingdom really have no, uh, really have no share in it. Um, as it says, the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Um, and it's at this point in the sermon, I think, where we can run the danger of assuming, assuming the gospel and say, here we are. We all know about this kingdom of God that's coming. We see how wonderful it's going to be. I'm so glad that that's something I'm partaking in. And we just assume on the covenant. And we think of ourselves as enjoying those blessings that we see in verse 4. But the testimony of the Bible is that that is not our natural state. Our natural state is not that we are in a position where we are enjoying the blessings of um, of verse 4. That we are experiencing the rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That we are experiencing the ruler of the the kingdom, really the ruler of the universe, that we are experiencing in such a way that he dawns on us like the morning sun. The testimony of most of the Bible is that, in fact, we are the people of verse 6 and 7. That we're worthless. That we're foolish and we're godless. And what does Paul tell us in Ephesians 2? He reminds his readers in Ephesians 2, he says, that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And what does he mean by that? That we're by nature children of wrath. What he means is that we by nature are people who deserve 
for someone to come at us with iron and a spear and consume us with fire. Paul is telling us in Ephesians 2, we are the rebels in verse 6 and 7. We do not by our very nature experience the blessings of the king. Instead, we actually experience the wrath of the king. In Samuel, 2 Samuel, where we have seen numerous rebellions against the king's authority, it's too easy for us to think that we're one of David's mighty men following along beside him in faithfulness. When Paul tells us we're Absalom, who ought to be following the father, but instead tries to supplant the father. And so David gives us a prophecy about the kingdom, but the reality is that in our natural state, that's not the kingdom we experience. We aren't part of that kingdom. So while we're in our sins, we are worthless children of wrath. And I want to just kind of let us, lead us through thinking about what the reality of our actual kingdom looks like. Because according to Paul, aren't we destined to be gathered up and consumed by fire? And one of the proofs that we're destined for that is our human inclination to get the covenant backwards. And in verse 5, it says, God has made with me an everlasting covenant and ordered all things secure. And too often we think that God owes us prosperity because we've made a covenant with him, not that he's made a covenant with us. Every time in our natural state we tell God, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to expect you to bless me in return. We are turning the covenant of God on its head, and we have basically become pagans. Right? This is exactly what all of the ancient pagans believed, especially the Romans. If we serve the gods, then the gods will protect us and give us prosperity. We're going to serve them. We make a covenant with them to serve them. They will, in turn, give us what we want. Um, and, and we can't throw any stones at the Romans and we can't throw any stones at the Greeks and the Assyrians and all the rest because that's just the natural state of what it means to be a human being. We put ourselves in the place of God by trying to make ourselves out to be the covenant makers. We're not the covenant makers. We shouldn't approach, the, we shouldn't approach God bringing our terms for what a covenant's going to be like. How many deals have various people tried to pull with God, right? Even today it happens. Even some of us are guilty of this at times. And then, you know, by grace we, we repent of it. Um, but it's not just individuals. How many nations say, if I do this, then God is going to bless us somehow, and through the centuries, we see this time and time again where we put ourselves in the position of being a covenant maker. Um, 
And then this just proves that we are usurping the rightful place of God, which then proves if you try to usurp the rightful place of God, that proves that you are a very foolish individual, right? Because you are not in fact God, and God is really God. And if you try to be God when you are not God, that is the height of foolishness, which means that you are, you are worthless and godless. Um, and in the end, it doesn't do us any good, because what characterizes our own kingdom? Do we possess the blessings of verses 3 and 4? So, um, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to spout from the earth, uh, sprout from the earth. When was the last time that any of us could claim um, that the kingdom was ruled in righteousness? How many kingdoms in human history have been ruled in righteousness? And if you look at if you look at America, do you look at our rulers and think to yourself, "Hallelujah, ruling in righteousness right now, praise the Lord." Um, if you think that, then you probably need to look a little closer because um, they're not really doing that. Um, and do our rulers really bring us refreshment as a people? Do we really see them coming and shining on us like the sun on a cloudless sky? I'm feeling like that's not the case because I've been on social media this week and the week before that. And nobody's just happy, shiny people. Like having the rulers shine on us and we're all like, it's happy, it's good. Everybody's so positive about politics these days. Um, It's so weird. That's not, um, that's, not the way, that's not the way it is. And the reason it's not like that is because of our own sin, right? It's because of our ruler's sin that they don't shine on us. And it's because of our sin that we have those rulers. We have the rulers we deserve. We don't deserve better than what we've got. That's the great thing about living in a, you know, a representative democracy, right? So that you get what you deserve. Um, so, so, and let's not beat ourselves up too badly because Solomon was the best of the best, right? And Solomon didn't live up to this text either. Solomon ruled with a certain amount of justice, but when it says, when one rules justly over men, another translation of that could just be, um, he rules righteousness. Like the Hebrew poetry like leaves out lots of verbs. Uh, and he just, righteousness. That's him, the ruler. And Solomon was not a wholly righteous individual. He had a lot of problems. Um, he let his heart go astray. He had too many wives. He trusted in the chariots of Egypt Rather than, um, rather than the might of of the God of Jacob, and did he dawn on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning? Was he a refreshment to the people of Israel? Yes, and a big no, because as soon as Solomon is dead, they tell his son, "We really appreciated your dad, 
but his taxes were really high and a burden to us. We like what your father did, but he was not a refreshment to our souls. He was a heavy burden laid upon us as a people. Can you please lighten that burden? And his son says, no. And immediately, the kingdom splits. And so in a sense, you read the prophecy of David, which he says, this is an oracle from God that I have received. And within one generation, this kingdom that sounds like it's supposed to be a refreshment and a blessing to the people that is, what does it say? Secured by the covenant with God, secured, just ceases to exist completely. In one generation. So you think to yourself, is this really not an oracle? Is he a liar? Or do you have to go back to your heart and to the scriptures and to God and say, there must be something else going on here. Because human kingdoms are never characterized by these things that David promises us. And so what hope do we have to establish this kind of kingdom that David prophesies about? What hope did David have? His hope is in the covenant-making God of Jacob. It's not actually in his own right actions. As we see time and time again, David didn't always have right actions. Um, And so with the reigns of David and Solomon, even this high point in the history of the Hebrew people, we only see a partial fulfillment about what it means to have uh, a kingdom that is a blessing to the people in that kingdom. And we can't understand the gospel until we understand how fruitless all of this is under our own power. That we can't do this on our own. That we can't make a covenant with God that's going to bring about a right, rightly ordered society. And we certainly can't make a social contract with one another that's going to bring about a rightly ordered uh, society. And what we have to do is, the first place we have to do is we have to start out with the recognition that we are the worthless ones that David is talking about in verses 6 and 7. And if we acknowledge that, then we are in a position where we can move towards repentance and actually begin to embrace some of the covenant that God offers that he has established. So David is the Messiah of the people. He proclaims the very oracles of God. He speaks with the mouth of God as the Messiah of the people here. But then if you read the rest of the scriptures, it's like they're saying, this is not the Messiah you're looking for, right? It's just a, it's a, it's pointing somewhere else. It's pointing somewhere else. And the place that's pointing is to the person of Jesus Christ, who, starting back up at the top, was the man who was raised up. Verse 1, David, the son of Jesse, oracle of the man who was raised up. David had a humble background, and Jesus's was just as humble, if not more humble, than David's was. He was in the line of David, 
but he was just a carpenter's son. And he was from the city of Nazareth. And as we know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus turns out to be a very surprising Messiah. What does Messiah mean? An anointed one. David gets anointed by a prophet of God. That was surprising. Just a poor little shepherd boy. Jesus gets anointed by a sinful woman. That's even more surprising. But he's the anointed of God nonetheless. And as as David is raised up into the position of authority over the Hebrew people, Jesus is raised up on a cross, a very, very surprising Messiah. And most surprisingly, he is also raised up from the dead and then raised up to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. Things that David never would have considered possible for himself. And even now, even now Jesus is fulfilling the promises of verses 3 and 4 for, for us. We can trust in Jesus to act with righteousness and justice in all things. Because of his resurrection, he has proven his righteousness. And so we trust in that historical reality and we trust that he is even now ruling the universe with justice and righteousness. And he provides refreshment for the souls of those that are in his kingdom. And he promises refreshment for our bodies as well in the coming kingdom. We're not going to have to worry anymore about politics. We're not going to have to worry anymore about our life circumstances because we will have Jesus with us as the sun, right? We will be able to see him and his brightness as we see the sun now. But even now, as sojourners in this world, we have the power to say it is well, even when materially and physically speaking, it is not well, right? By the spirit that he has given us, our souls are refreshed And contrary to the rest of the world, we are able to say it is well when we are in the process of dying. When we are in the process of being persecuted for our our faith. We're in the process of just experiencing the small or large difficulties that life presents presents us with. And that's our testimony, that we can say that. And this, this kingdom that he has created for us, he provides by virtue of the covenant that comes because of the work that he has done, not the work that we have done. In a sense, this is the most surprising thing about Jesus as a Messiah. Look at that imagery that we see in verses 6 and 7. Worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. Jesus reached out, metaphorically, and took those thorns with the hand. 
And literally, a crown of thorns was placed on his head to symbolize that he was the king. But he's the king of a rebellious people that he's in the process of redeeming. We are those thorns. And how does it say the rightful ruler will deal with these worthless men? But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they're utterly consumed with fire. Jesus puts himself in the position of those worthless people in verse 7. And when they came for Jesus, they armed themselves with iron nails to nail him to a cross. And they armed themselves with a spear in which they pierced him in his side. And he died and was buried, consumed with fire, experiencing the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins so that we don't have to. The worthless people, and this is the miracle of the gospel, right? That what the worthless people deserved is actually poured out on that righteous ruler who we see in verse 3. Does he deserve any of this? No. But the wrath that the worthless deserved, he absorbs for the worthless sake to redeem them and bring them into that covenant that they could not establish themselves. He perished for the worthless, you and me. And in the process, he gave us his worthiness. And right after... You know, going back to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. I'd said that Paul told the Ephesians, we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then he gives them comfort. He tells them, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when, he, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. It's a blessing that because of the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ we can look forward to that coming age. And, And that's the coming age that David here is prophesying towards and the rest of scripture are pointing towards. Like, Yeah, there is a partial, somewhat very shady, shadowy fulfillment in the reign of Solomon. But it's fulfilled in Jesus, along with the rest of the scriptures. And so here we have David's last words, a prophecy about Solomon. But it's not really that. It's really a prophecy about Jesus, and we wait expectantly for this consummation of this prophecy. So we shouldn't be discouraged right now that our rulers aren't necessarily ruling us with justice. And we shouldn't necessarily be discouraged by the fact that 
they're not providing for us refreshment from our, for our souls because they can't do that. They're not equipped to do that. There's only one person who can do that. And this season will pass, and his season will, will come. And we've talked about how last words are important, and so it's worthwhile to think about, so we just looked at David's last words, but it's worthwhile to just think about what are Jesus' last words. And the ones that probably get the most um, publicity, and, and justifiably so because they're very important, but his last words on the cross when he says, it is finished, this is where he is proclaiming that he has done all the work necessary to bring about worthless people and redeem them and have them, be, um, have them appropriate his worthiness so that they can be part of this kingdom and experience this refreshment. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful summation of the gospel. It is finished because I have done it. God, has, God himself has, has done the work. Um, but those aren't really his last words either, are they? Because he doesn't stay dead. And then right before he leaves his disciples, he gives them some more last words. And he tells them, take this message back to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. And I think that's a message for those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ today to follow through with. We need to be mindful that we have good news and that Jesus has commanded us to take this message to the utter ends of the earth. This message that it is finished. Um, if, you're, if you're not a believer today, then, then be comforted that the work is finished and that you don't have to finish it, that it was done by Jesus. But you need to put your faith and trust in him. Uh, but then those weren't Jesus' last words either because if you read John's revelation, at the very end, Jesus says, surely I'm coming soon. And those are really the, the last words that we often forget about, Right? that Jesus has not just come once, but he's coming a second time, and we need to live in light of that. It's easy to become, uh, it's easy to become overwhelmed by the cares of the world and not recognize that it's all for a season, but there will be an everlasting glory in store for us in which when he comes, he will dawn on us like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. And my prayer is that we would all be ready when he does. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our Messiah, our King, the one who rules over us with justice and righteousness. We ask that this morning you would let him dawn on our hearts like a morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Let us be refreshed by your spirit. Let our faith be renewed that Christ is risen and that he is coming back for us. Let our hearts be turned towards that day 
Let us look forward to it with longing. Let us live our life in light of that fact. And let's keep our own disappointments with this life in perspective as we look forward to the life that you provide us now in our spirit and the eternal life you provide in the coming age. And we ask that we would be able to worship together on that day, your son, Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.